Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Garrett Graff, who is the author of Watergate, A New History. This is not a short book, but it is a fascinating book. Um, And for anybody who is interested in Watergate and the many dimensions of it, I recommend this very strongly. Um, This is published by Avid Reader Press in 2022. um, So it's hot off the presses. Um, And I want to welcome Garrett Graff to the New Books and Political Science podcast and ask him to tell us a little bit about himself, and then we will dive into the book. Hi, Garrett. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Um, I am a uh, journalist and historian um, and uh, mostly write about uh, the intersection of uh, politics and technology and national security. um, And so have sort of chipped at the side of Watergate a a couple of times before in, in previous books and then uh, spent the last five years, you know, seven years almost at this point in my career, uh, covering the Trump administration and the um, the Russia's attack on the 2016 election and the Mueller investigation and sort of all of that fun stuff, uh, which was what led me to want to dive into this as a historical project and look at the last time our country dealt with uh, the, these questions uh, about sort of crime and corruption in the White House. And, and you certainly do dive in. Um, and, and one of the things that I found really fascinating, besides the parallels, obviously, to some of the things that we've just gone through in the Trump administration, was the fact that you talk about Watergate not as one scandal, um, but as a sort of myriad of scandals that are strangely and sometimes connected and sometimes a little bit disconnected from each other. Um, and so I was going to ask you, you know, as we get into this discussion of Watergate, um, to explain a little bit about, you know, not only what happened at the Watergate Hotel by the plumbers, um, but how you sort of conceptualize Watergate as this bigger sort of trajectory, particularly in the Nixon administration? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, And one of the things that really sort of stood out to me as I got into this is uh, how much we have really misunderstood Watergate over the years. Um, And what I mean by that is we as you say, uh, think of Watergate as the burglary of the Democratic National Committee headquarters on June 17th, 1972. But what it turns out is that that was sort of the equivalent of America walking into the second or third act of a play. And that what Watergate really represents is less an event and more a mindset. And it is this dark, paranoid, criminal, conspiratorial mindset that permeates the upper ranks of the Nixon uh, administration, his reelection campaign, and of course, the Oval Office and the president himself. And that Watergate actually really ends up being about a dozen 
distinct but interrelated scandals, um, the, many of which involve overlapping similar actors uh, and, and characters, but with a wide variety of differing motives um, and, uh, and motivations. And, and so, you know, we, we've seen recently Roger Stone, who was one of the sort of, quote, dirty tricksters from the Nixon era, has resurfaced recently. Um, and for many of us who have some knowledge of Watergate, we can recite um, various names like Ehrlichman and Halderman and Dean and Mitchell. Um, but like, what, what, how is this third act with the the actual bugging of the Watergate headquarters, what happened before it that, you know, is sort of part of this, as you say, dark kind of conspiratorial mindset in the Nixon White House? Yeah. Part of this story is that there were just, as it turns out, and as we sort of come to understand it, there were just so many wild schemes and crimes and abuses of power playing out in the Nixon White House that they weren't really sure themselves what what the extent of it all was. And that because of that, they were unable to really effectively combat in the media, in the public sphere, any one of these scandals because they didn't really know where one scandal would lead into another. And that sort of the burglary in some ways just becomes this thread that people pull on until you know the whole Nixon sweater ultimately unravels. Um, and that there were so many people doing so many crazy things inside the administration that they couldn't even come up with good alibis or defenses among them because everyone was afraid about asking what anyone else was actually involved in. Um, And you have these sort of incredible moments where you see the trust really break down in the upper ranks of the Nixon White House and the Nixon campaign, where sort of Nixon himself, who is entirely blameless, as it turns out, for the burglary itself, there's no evidence that Richard Nixon was involved in the planning or um, uh, knew of the burglary in advance, ends up basically not being able to trust any of his aides enough to ask who actually ordered the burglary because he was afraid of what the answers would turn out to be. This is a strange place for you to find yourself as president. Yeah, and there is a, a great deal of irony wrapped up in a lot of this because H.R. Halderman, the White House Chief of Staff, um, is widely seen as one of the most effective, you know, perhaps the most effective White House Chief of Staff in modern American political history. And so the idea that, uh, you know, all of the this chicanery and shenanigans took place under H.R. Halderman's watch 
um, it ends up delivering this weird layer of irony to so much of the story. And and so I wanted to ask you about some of the preceding scandals, because one of the ones that you talk about in the book, and that is not on the tip of everybody's tongue. Um, and I mean, we, we understand about the Pentagon Papers as being sort of part and parcel of what was going on um, in terms of uh, enveloping scandals having to do with the White House. Um, but you talk early on and at some length about the Chenault affair, um, which is not something that many people are aware of or understand how it connects at all to not only the White House, but to Watergate in general. Can you explain a little bit about that particular scandal and how that weaves in? Yeah. So this this is one of the great uh, stories at, at the heart of the, the Watergate saga and the, the Watergate tragedy. Um, you know, this is backing up a step um, about tackling this project. Um, you know, Watergate is a story that has been sliced and diced in a thousand ways um, over the last 50 years. Um, you know, it is the subject of, uh, you know, nearly 40 memoirs by key participants alone, as well as you know, some of the most famous uh, political journalism of, uh, of all time, you know, the uh, Woodward and Bernstein's All the President's Men and their follow on the final days. Um, you know, there are dozens of books by journalists about this, you know, scores of books by uh, academics and historians. Um, there are uh, you know, multiple congressional investigations um, that, uh, you know, span, you know, literally dozens of volumes uh, of evidence and uh, transcripts. Um, and then the Nixon tapes, um, you know, span uh, more than 3,000 pages um, of, uh, of transcripts. And... Uh, and so, you know, in some ways, it it's easy to think that sort of you know everything that there is to know about Watergate. Um, but what I found as I got into this story is that it's actually been more than a quarter of a century since the last time anyone did a full narrative history of Watergate, sort of a soup to nuts, start to finish uh, Watergate story. And that the story of Watergate has actually pretty dramatically changed in that last quarter century. Um, and that there are a number of major sets of revelations that have come out uh, that really um, change in, in material ways our understanding of what transpired during the Watergate scandal. Um, and the two that really stand out um, are the Chenault affair, which you mentioned, and which I, I'll explain in a minute, um, and then the um, the discovery in two thousand five that Mark Felt, the deputy director of the FBI, was the anonymous source known as Deep Throat, um, and that the simple fact that we now know that. Mark Felt was Deep Throat actually is a pretty dramatic 
change in the story that we thought that we knew from uh, the 1970s because we sort of always imagined Deep Throat and the anonymous source as this, you know, sort of pro-democracy, protecting America, you know, truth, justice in the American way, uh, you know, Nixon insider disgusted by, um, you know, Nixon's abuse of power. And what you actually find with Mark Felt is he doesn't care about Richard Nixon much at all. Um, and that he is uh, bitter that he got passed over to be the director of the FBI. And so is trying to do everything that he can to sink Pat Gray, the acting director of the FBI, and try to take the guy's job. And so he ends up really... Uh, sort of playing this like backroom knife fighting backstabbing office succession politics in the Justice Department in the middle of the FBI in the middle of the larger Watergate scandal um, that's like has nothing to do with Richard Nixon um, and just like he actually in some key moments that I found um, knows damaging information about Richard Nixon that he doesn't bother telling anyone because he doesn't actually care that much about Richard Nixon. So like that, just that whole story arc is turns out to be dramatically different. The second is this thing that you raised, the Chenault affair. Um, and it is this bonkers story that until the last decade, we didn't know was related to Watergate at all. Um, and we didn't actually really know what had transpired during this series of events at all until the uh, about a decade ago when there were some newly declassified documents from the President uh, Lyndon Johnson Presidential Library. Um, and what the story is, is that as a presidential candidate uh, in the fall of 68, remember this is former Vice President Richard Nixon, the Republican nominee, running against then sitting Vice President Hubert Humphrey, and that the uh, Vietnam War is raging in the background of their campaign. That in, you know that this is the most important issue in, in American politics. The you know the escalation and tragedy of the Vietnam War has broken Lyndon Johnson's presidency, um, you know, kept him from running for re-election at all. And he is, uh, in his final months in office, totally focused on the peace process, desperately trying to bring the parties to the table in the Paris peace talks and bring the war to a close. And Richard Nixon intervenes and Richard Nixon, working through his campaign director, John Mitchell, uh, contacts this Washington doyenne named Anna Chenault, who, totally coincidentally, lives in the Watergate apartment complex. Um, sort of one of the weird bits of this whole story is how much of the story takes place in the Watergate buildings, separate and apart and totally coincidentally from the... Um, from the burglary itself. So uh, Nixon goes uh, to Anna Chenault and asks her to intervene with the South Vietnamese government to stall the Paris peace talks 
in October 1968. So to put a very clear point on what Nixon is doing is he is keeping the Vietnam War going for his political benefit, that he believes that uh, if he can keep the war going, he can keep American servicemen dying in the jungles of Vietnam in the fall of 68, it will help him win the presidency. And uh, Lyndon Johnson, the president, uh, discovers this um, and uncovers the treachery um, from U.S. intelligence uh, and goes ballistic and confronts Richard Nixon. And uh, in the closing hours of the fall campaign, um, sort of on the Sunday and Monday of the, you know, before the Tuesday election, um, Nixon denies the whole thing. Johnson fumes and then watches uh, Richard Nixon win election um, and decides basically that he needs to bury the whole incident because it will undermine Richard Nixon's legitimacy as he comes into the presidency. And what ends up uh, happening is Richard and Lyndon Johnson sort of classifies the whole thing and buries it. But Richard Nixon knows that Johnson knows about this treachery. And this guilty conscience becomes sort of the Edgar Allan Poe telltale heart beating at the center of the Nixon White House. And that he sort of ends up going deeper and deeper into all of these crazy schemes uh, as president, because he is afraid that these that the truth of this treachery is going to come out, and that Nixon ends up uh, in, in many ways sort of over responding to the Pentagon Papers. He uh, creates the Plumbers Unit that becomes sort of these crazy henchmen in the center of the Nixon uh, White House with E. Gordon Liddy, or G. Gordon Liddy and E. Howard Hunt, um, basically to try to cover up and keep secret the Chenault affair. Um, and that these men then go sort of wildly out of, um, uh, out of place and, you know, their overeager imaginations and uh, crazy schemes go off the rails and eventually lead to them burglarizing the Watergate. Um, and that it becomes, uh, in many ways, I think, the original sin of all of Watergate in a way that we didn't really understand that these two events were linked at all until just the last couple of years. And I, I wanted to ask you about that, um, not only that information um, sort of getting released in the Johnson papers, you know, from its classified status over the 50 year period of time when it remained classified, um, but you go through not only all the, the histories and biographies and autobiographies that have been written, but you also go through the tapes trying to sort of figure out what was actually said and recorded. Um, and you talk about the fact that it's often difficult to understand some of the things on the tapes. Um, what other components of the Watergate story 
besides Mark Felt and the Chenault affair, and I want to get back to Mark Felt, um, did you sort of find that were kind of absent from our understanding of Watergate broadly construed? Yeah, so I think the answer to that is uh, this idea of just how broad Watergate ends up being. Um, and that, you know, the we sort of think of Watergate as, you know, the five burglars, um, you know, the Irvin Committee, you know, Five burglars, Woodward, Bernstein, Deep Throat, John, uh, Sam Irvin, John Dean, you know, Pete Rodino, Nixon resigns. Um, and, and that Watergate turns out to be this massive set of criminal cases that unfurls for effectively a decade. Um, it ends up with 69 people uh, criminally charged, arrested or indicted. Um, uh, you know, John Mitchell, uh, becomes the highest ranking, uh, U.S. official in history to go to prison. The attorney general, um, who is put on trial alongside Maurice Stans, the, the secretary of commerce, um, George Steinbrenner, the owner of the New York Yankees ends up pleading guilty to campaign finance violations stemming from Watergate American Airlines Goodyear Tire, I mean, all of these blue chip companies end up caught up in this. And that you see just this really crazy set of circumstances play out, um, uh, unfurling up through years, up to and including uh, Mark Felt himself, who, uh, as deputy director of the FBI, um, it ends up being put on trial at the end of the 1970s for his own abuses of power and civil liberties violations in the midst of the Nixon administration, um, where the he is deputy director, Pat Gray, the acting director, um, and a third FBI official end up going uh, on trial for their civil liberties abuses of, of ordinary Americans. Um, and it just ends up being this thing that spirals and unfolds for years in all sorts of different directions. Um, it, 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 some of which include, you know, these scandals that had they happened during any other time in political history would be among the biggest scandals of American political history. Um, not the least of which is the totally unrelated uh, bribery investigation and prosecution of the vice president of the United States, Spiro Agnew, that unfolds in the summer and fall of 1973 that sees uh, Agnew resign under pressure, plead guilty to uh, criminal charges in a Baltimore courtroom for literally taking bribes as vice president in the White House complex, that he, um, you know, in in some ways it ends up being this very open and shut investigation because the Secret Service keeps incredibly detailed visitors' logs of who comes in and out of the vice president's uh, offices, and so they have like minute by minute 
uh, timestamps of when people showed up to pay off Spiro Agnew with these bribes once they start looking for them. And and the Spiro Agnew story, um, which you know has also recently been made into a podcast um, that this sort of takes up all of the things that transpired, um, also connects to Watergate because there was concern that if Agnew remained in office and Watergate found some, you know, underhanded operations by the Nixon administration, that Agnew could potentially become president. Yes. And this becomes a a key driver in the very late sentence that Spiro Agnew gets in the end is the Justice Department, which, you know, at not that we really need a reminder of this anymore after the Trump years, but uh, as a reminder, the Justice Department, which works for the president as part of the executive branch, um, the Justice Department is simultaneously investigating both the president and the vice president in separate criminal matters. And there becomes this rising fear through the summer of 73 uh, a, a, a period where sort of Watergate breaks wide open in the public consciousness that if Richard Nixon is forced from office and Spiro Agnew is forced from office, then the Democratic Speaker of the House is the next in line for the presidency. And there becomes this very deep concern that uh, there might effectively be a, you know, coup and transfer of power where um, Nixon and Agnew might be uh, cast aside um, and that uh, and then a Democrat assumes the rest of the Richard Nixon's second term. And so, you know, Congress is concerned about this. The Democrats are concerned about this. Um the Justice Department is concerned about this. And so they end up ultimately uh, making a deal with Spiro Agnew to give him a very light sentence in the interest of getting him out of office as quickly as possible um, and bringing in uh, Gerald Ford, the first man ever appointed to the vice presidency, who ends up uh, not even a year later becoming the first man to assume the presidency without ever being elected to vice president or president. One of the one of the points that you make throughout the book, and you you have these interesting footnotes where you sort of correct records and dates and and things that that not only those who are involved are mistaking, but also that the American public is not necessarily totally getting all of the information in the right sequence. And, and because there are so many different components to this. But part of what you're also talking about throughout the book is the mythology of Watergate versus the reality of Watergate. And so much of that has become just part of the American sort of cultural understanding, not only of Watergate, but of Richard Nixon um, and of, you know, Vietnam and the Pentagon Papers and a lot of this, as you note, is also connected to the way that this has been presented, not only in the book, All the President's Men, but also particularly in the Academy Award-winning film, 
all the president's men and how this has sort of locked in a perspective on this understanding of Watergate. Can you talk about how, I mean, it is 700 pages, so it does definitely correct any any misguiding areas if one reads through the entirety of Watergate, A New History. Um, but can you point out some of the ways that we have conceptualized Watergate in one form and a, a sort of a mythical notion and how it really was different from our mythological understanding. Yeah. Um, the myth of Watergate is real. Um, it, you know, it is, uh, I'm a child of the 1980s. I was an aspiring journalist from very early on. I mean, it is impossible to grow up without, uh, uh, if you're a child of the 1980s and interested in journalism, it is impossible to grow up without, um, you know, being influenced by Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman and Hal Holbrook in the garage um, of all the president's men. And what you end up uh, seeing, though, as you sort of come to understand it, is that Woodward and Bernstein matter, but not in the way that we've sort of popularly understood. Um, and that, in fact, that they are part of the story actually only for a pretty narrow period of time. And it is a matter of months in the fall of uh, six, uh, fall of 72, where they sort of break a series of stories public um, that keep some of the momentum of Watergate going. But they're actually part of a broader constellation of about a half dozen journalists, um, including Walter Ruggerber from the New York Times, Seymour Hirsch from the New York Times, um, and then Jack Nelson and Ron Ostro from the LA Times, who all break their own stories through uh, sort of July of 72 through about March of 73, uh, when Watergate begins to uh, accumulate what you might call escape velocity and sort of takes up a, a life of its own. Um, and then in, in some respects, actually, the Woodward and Bernstein aren't responsible for any of the three biggest stories um, of, of Watergate um, at, during that time span, although they are the reporters who are sort of most consistently covering the event during that time span. Um, and then they sort of actually disappear from the second year of the scandal because they're off writing their own book, All the President's Men. Um, and that um, what you see, and one of the things that I think All the President's Men, the movie, does um, as a disservice to American history is the way that it flattens the story to center journalists as sort of the be-all and end-all heroes of, of Watergate. When what you actually see is that over the course of the two years of that scandal, um, there's a tremendous pantheon of heroes, each playing their own distinct parts. Um, people inside the FBI, inside the Watergate Special Prosecution Force, inside the Irvin Committee, the Rodino Committee, 
And uh, that part of, I think, what makes Watergate the story so instructive and important and amazing to read now is the way that you understand it as this great lesson in how power works in Washington. That in many ways it is, I call it in the book, the, the, the greatest story ever told of how power works in, uh, in Washington, D.C. Because you see all of the institutions of American politics and American government, the media, uh, the FBI, the Justice Department, the House, the Senate, the local courts, uh, the, the appeals court, the Supreme Court, all come together to achieve something that none of them could achieve on their own. That sort of no one of those institutions was actually powerful enough to drive Richard Nixon from office. And that it took all of them. It took Article One of the Constitution, Article Two, Article Three, and the Bill of Rights to bring together the sort of delicate ballet of checks and balances that ultimately forces a corrupt and criminal president from office. And and I wanted to ask you also about some of the the other criminality. We've talked about the Chenault affair a bit. Um, but one of the things that you do talk about, and it's kind of woven through, is how um, Nixon and the Nixon White House kind of got CIA and FBI to do some stuff that, you know, as you know, the Bill of Rights probably had some prohibitions against. Um, and that we also then see Congress coming forward afterwards trying to prevent something like this from happening again. And we saw a little bit of this going backwards during the Trump administration, I think. Yeah. And then in many ways, um, the Washington that we live in today is the creation of Watergate. Um, and that we see this whole wave of uh, intelligence oversight, you know, surveillance reform, um, things like that unfold in the wake of Watergate as the country tries to sort of right the abuses of power and the corruption that Nixon um, unleashed or encouraged as president. Um, and that really ends up changing Washington. Um, you know, it, Watergate changes the way that the media covers the presidency, media covers Congress. Um, it changes the way that Congress covers the executive branch. I mean, the, the sort of very idea of congressional oversight is so rare that when the Sam Irvin Senate Watergate Committee sits down to sort of look to the type of work that it wants to do, it has to go all the way back to the Battle of Bull Run in 1861 to look at the congressional hearings about the conduct of the Civil War to sort of find analogs for the type of oversight that it wanted to do and that we now consider, you know, part and parcel of, you know, not, not all of, but certainly much of the work that Congress actually does on a day-to-day -day basis in hearings now. 
Um, and that there was this sort of, uh, e- even in some ways, you know, as we are sitting here today in the spring of 2022, um, all of the battles that we are seeing with Donald Trump and the January 6th committee over the uh, over executive privilege stem from Watergate. It, 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 it was Watergate that actually ends up uh, codifying for the first time in American history the existence of an executive privilege, something that many presidents had tried to claim before, but that no one that had never actually been recognized by a court. Um, and so, you know, all of these Trump fights right now over executive privilege, not the legacy of Watergate too. And and I, I wanted to ask you because there's so much that you read through and you note that you're, you didn't do many interviews because so many people have written books and, and so forth. Um, was there something in particular that surprised you when you found it? So I think that there were a couple of different things that surprised me. One, which we've talked about is, you know, the scale and scope of Watergate. The second um, was just how much Watergate ends up consuming Richard Nixon, not just in his presidency, but personally. Um, one of the most sort of stunning uh, revelations that I found, you know, I'm not, I wasn't necessarily the first to find it, but it was sort of a, a, a you know, a journey of discovery that I went on was paging through the president's daily diaries in uh, the Nixon library, which are these literally minute by minute uh, rundowns of, you know, every telephone call, every meeting, you know, where the president was every minute that he was awake morning to night. Um, every person he met with, the minute that they walked into the room, the minute they walked out of the room, the minute Richard Nixon got up and walked into a different room. Um, and what you see is, you know, four years, five years of a very normal presidency. You know, there is, in America, arguably, there is no more finite resource than the time of the president of the United States. You know, this is, um, you know, if, if you sort of are ever around the orbit of the presidency, you know, the whole machine sort of turns minute to minute, um, you know, to make use of every minute of a president's term. Then beginning in the fall of 73, what you see with Richard Nixon is Watergate just consume him week by week. And those presidential daily diaries get skimpier and skimpier. Um, And he retreats into his sort of hideaway office in the old executive office building and sits sort of week after week for longer and longer stretches, listening to the Watergate tapes on his own and writing on these yellow legal pads. And there are days that go by where he does like six total minutes of presidential work through the day and spends the rest of the day sort of sitting effectively by himself in uh, in uh, his hideaway office, um, listening to these tapes, writing, um, thinking, stewing. 
Um, and that there end up being sort of entire weeks that go by where he like doesn't do 45 minutes worth of total work during the entire week because he's so consumed by these tapes. And, and you just get this really haunting picture of a tortured president as you flip through these uh, daily diaries sort of page by page and they empty out and you realize sort of what that emptiness really means. And, and you, you know, you do talk about how Nixon's personality and, and his foibles and his, you know, you sort of mention his consumption of alcohol here and there um, also sort of feed into some of our thinking about the paranoia and the conspiracy of Richard Nixon, but it wasn't just Richard Nixon. It was throughout the people who were around him as well. Um, so it was, you know, it's sort of like feeding on itself in, in a certain sense. Um, but also that he is a loner. Um, I mean, all of these sort of understandings of presidential personalities, which we also see in the scholarship on understanding the presidency is very much here in Nixon so palpable. Yes, uh, um, and you see how I mean this is this is one of the great you know lessons or surprises or whatever you want to call it of Watergate, which is how it, you know this paranoid mindset ends up transmitting throughout the upper ranks of the administration and ends up pulling in all of these people who just have no business being anywhere close to the presidency. Um, you know. Um, you know, you, you look at the schemes and the wild things that, um, you know, Gordon Liddy and Howard Hunt are up to, uh, you, you know, the, the break-ins that they're involved in. They, you know, they have these grand plans to, uh, you know, kidnap and drug activists, anti-Nixon activists and kidnap them to Mexico. Um, they, they have these, uh, you know, schemes to follow the president, follow the Democratic uh, nominees plane around the country with their own high-tech spy plane, um, uh, you know, to lure Democratic officials back to a uh, houseboat in Miami near the Democratic convention. Um Way that's going to be wired for sound and video uh, and stocked with all of these uh, expensive call girls who will uh, seduce them and learn all of the secrets and blackmail material of the Democratic Party. Um, and, and that sort of no one ever tells anyone involved in any of these crazy schemes no. And that sort of these things all um, sort of shuffle forward simply because no one is actually really brave enough to stand up and say, no, this is a crazy bad idea and we should definitely not be doing this. Um, and instead, the, um, the schemes just sort of metastasize and spread uh, and and deepen and destroy the presidency from within. And I wanted to ask you, as you talk about the fact that the Watergate has really shifted Washington, D.C., 
to to in a lot of ways. It it was also happening at a time when Washington D.C. was becoming a, a bigger player, and there were more people there, and there was more expansion of the executive branch um, and the bureaucracy. But also that Washington itself shifted because of the developments that came out of Watergate as a result. Um, but what lessons might we learn <laughs> uh, in thinking, in rethinking Watergate in 2022? Yeah, so I think that there, uh, there are a number that stand out to me. Um, one of the ones that I think is important to highlight in the context of our modern political moment is this sense of sort of what worked then and what doesn't now. And that in many ways, one of the things that stands out to me most is the behavior of the Republican Party in the midst of Watergate from 72 to 74. And what you see there is a party that is interested in the, the, the members of Congress, the members of the House and Senate, who understand that they, as Congress, are a co-equal branch of government, and that as the legislative branch, they have a responsibility to hold in check the executive branch, and that they act as uh, members of Congress first, and Republicans second, and that uh, they um, you know don't do it happily. You know they there's no one who is sort of voting enthusiastically to uh, impeach or remove Richard Nixon, um, but that they understand that uh, sort of their duty as a co-equal branch of government is to. Uh, hold the executive branch in check and to ensure that it is not abusing its power and abusing the civil liberties of the American people. And that this in many ways um, is different than what we see today. And that what we have sort of actually now seen is members of Congress in both the first and the second impeachment of, of Donald Trump who act as members of the Republican Party first and members of Congress second. And that that difference, I think, is really key to understanding what it takes to protect American democracy and ensure it for the future. And is there anything else that one might think about? Because we did have this administration that not only had one impeachment, but two, um, and that there were, you know, obviously there were scandals associated, uh, various kinds of scandals, but it didn't seem like they were necessarily all sort of under the same spiral of the, in the Trump administration. They were kind of here, there, and everywhere. Um, but that it was also about understanding perhaps how the president should operate. Exactly. And that's what is the, you know, the one common denominator in every scandal of the Trump administration and every scandal of the Trump administration is 
that this it's about the president. It's about the man who is at the center of the machine and the mentality and the ethical standards that he holds up uh, and, uh, and sort of permeates throughout his administration. And I think that that's where um, you do see sort of very strong parallels between the two, which is, um, you know, Nixon was, uh, Nixon was responsible for the mindset that enabled all of the crime, corruption, and abuse of power in his administration in the same way that uh, I would argue Donald Trump was for his administration. So now that you've written perhaps the definitive Watergate book um, after so many others, um, what is it that you're working on now, Garrett? So, uh, as, as I said, a lot of my work is on the history uh, and intersection of sort of politics, technology, and national security. Um, and uh, so I wrote a book um, uh, a couple of years ago called Raven Rock, that is the story of the U.S. government's doomsday plans during the Cold War and, and sort of the reality of all of the strange things that would have happened during and after a nuclear attack. Um, and so uh, right now I'm actually diving into a similar style book uh, looking at the history of the U.S. government's fascination and search for UFOs um, and, and trying to dig into the reality of uh, the, the UFO phenomenon through the last 75 years uh, of uh, American, uh, American history and, and the intersections and, and sort of twin threads of the Nixon, or of the military's hunt for UFOs and the sort of official NASA search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Well, might you come back to the New Books and Political Science podcast and talk to me about the UFOs? And I would love to. That would be great. I, I look forward to reading that. Thank you to um, Garrett Graff for joining me today to discuss Watergate, A New History, which was published in 2022 by Avid Reader Press. I am sure one can purchase this at Avid Reader Press and any place else that one might pick up a book that has a lot to do with our recent and current history. Any place you want to give a shout out to? Um, well, I am always a fan of supporting independent bookstores. So one can pick it up at, at your independent bookstore. Thank you so much for joining me today, Garrett. Thanks so much for having me.